equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome back to 1200 Current Events Edition we are here with three classic ho- co-hosts from the from the depths of the past. It's me, Philip. I hope you're well. Thanks for listening. We also have Kyle. How are you, Kyle? I am functioning. That's the best you ever get from Kyle, so that's actually quite high. Uh, and we also have John back after an extended leave of Peter Thiel-funded holidaying in the South Island. How are you, John? Look, it's 50% Peter Thiel, 50% George Soros. That's sensible centrism. It is. I love it. And I welcome you on the cast for that respect. Finally, a bit of balance in this bloody, bloody liberal nightmare. Too, too much left-wing nonsense on here. I'm here to be the anti-woke voice today. That's right. That's right. None of that. Okay. We are here to talk about a bit of Gaza, bit of NZ poll repealing, fun, fun stuff like that. And then the UK, what's happening and why over there? Um, when will that island sort themselves out and be sensible like us? Lovely. <laughs> Let's kick off. Let's shoot to Kyle. How are you feeling about Gaza, Kyle? Are you for it? Are you against it? I'm, your... I'm for Gaza. I'm against everything that's happening there, just about. Fuck, it's a, it just continues to be a nightmare. You know, we've been covering this October, November, December, January. It's March. Holy fuck. Yeah, somehow. For months, months and months. Um, and it has just got worse. It's got worse. Everything, it was bad. It was, it was immediately so bad. Uh, and it's got worse. And Israel and its allies know that everyone knows. They they know that we've seen the videos of them just yesterday uh, firing on Palestinians who were hoping to get some food. Like just opening fire on a crowd of starving people trying to get food aid. And everyone knows what happened. And then their spokespeople come out and say, oh, it was like a rabid mob Israeli Defense Forces had to fire on them for their own safety, and then people got run over by trucks and the confusion. And you're not you're not surprised by that at this point. You're not surprised at how they're faced their propaganda in the face of reality and in the face of international knowledge about what they're doing. But the disjunct between those two things is now in itself is monstrous like beyond just the actions and their their policies towards palestinians and the dehumanization of palestinians that discursive gap and their willingness to outright lie and the knowledge that people know they're doing that there's no way back for israel like there's no way back for israel as like uh, as how it currently exists like I out out of words, out of words. I I'm I'm done. I think one of the things about this is some people might say, "Oh, I don't know what's more disgusting," and I'm like, "It's the genocide. That's the most disgusting bit." But the the bit that is equally abhorrent in some ways is the fact that the decision of the U.S. and the U.K. in particular as allies in response to mass protest in their own countries about this is to try and make it illegal for people to protest about it. And I know we'll come on to that a bit later, but it's very much a there is a very serious risk that Joe Biden does not get reelected because he's fucked off too many people about about this issue. 
Like the thing in Michigan this week is not isolated, but their response is to close down the campaign, to not tell people where they're campaigning so protesters won't show up. It's not to engage with the issue at all. It's to pretend it isn't happening. And that's terrifying all by itself. I mean, we see these things happen again and again. And I don't know, I've been I've been marching for Palestine for like 21 years now, okay? And everything that the pro-Palestine side has said about Israel, they have done a speed run of since October 7th. And I say a speed run because they were already doing it before, but they were doing it in a slow, don't worry, people won't notice if we just put enough Hasbara out about it, you know, that it, like, it fades away or you don't see the day-to-day stuff or we turn it into, we turn the occupation into a mundane thing. Well, yeah, of course they killed some, set- they, of course they killed some Palestinians. They were too near a settlement. Don't ask about those settlements. But this is it taken to extremes. And it is, I, I have talked about this with some friends of mine, some Jewish friends of mine, some Palestinian friends of mine. And the, they pointed out that the same people in, who have been in charge in Israel for the last 30 or 40 years are in charge now. But we are on like a fourth or fifth generation of Palestinian leaders because they keep getting assassinated. And the only way they don't get assassinated is if they do the Palestinian Authority thing of being and subservient enough that you don't get assassinated. You know what I mean? Like like Mahmoud Abbas is in his 90s, refuses to give up power, but he's also there kind of because the Israeli state are like, cool, this guy can't do shit. And we're happy with that. And that's what I'm being very specific about here. I'm not just saying Israel, 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 but it is, he's there because they want him there. In the same way that Netanyahu was saying, we need to keep Hamas in Gaza because it's a great way of us to, to push away the two-state solution for a further amount of time. So there's this horrible situation where you are watching a genocide unfold right in front of you and you are being told by your government, do not look at that and whatever you do, don't get mad about it because we're not going to do anything about it. And in terms of things that will obviously, in terms of Chekhov's gun, Gaza right now is Chekhov's bazooka. This is going to backfire in a horrendous way somehow and it's going to change how geopolitics works in the same way that you could probably look at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s, or the invasion of Iraq in 2003 leading to ISIL and all of that sort of stuff. This is one of those moments, but we are being told we cannot consider it to be one of those moments. And it's one of the, you look into the future and you just go, oh shit, what's coming down the track here? You know, when a US airman can set fire to himself outside an Israeli embassy, and the response is, well, he was a member of a religious and anarchist cult and obviously wasn't very well. It's like, that guy was a serving US military officer. And he set fire to himself outside the embassy and shouted free Palestine until the police came, drew weapons on him, and then bundled him off to hospital. We are in a very, very strange place right now. And the fact that we're being told to accept it or even enjoy it is horrifying. Just horrifying. Yeah, great sentiments. Thanks, John. Yeah, I, I agree with a few, like, I'm not going to be as as eloquent as either of you have been, but a few kind of points that you bring up there, like it is, it is interesting how the the response from not just kind of the center like i suppose for want of a better word like sensible center media types to flashpoint events like this changes right based on priors and based on basically class solidarity and who they see themselves as similar to and just basic kind of reactionary sentiment like the the kind of impulses that we're seeing come out with people who in other contexts have been pro quote-unquote peace whatever that means right 
um, really kind of reveals the big lie of like global inequality and seeing yourself as as being on a certain team. I think that's why Palestine as as an issue has been quite a galvanizing force for the left over the last 20 plus years is that like it really does highlight some of those hypocrisies. So once other geopolitical issues kind of come and go, Palestine, the inequality in Palestine and the fundamental kind of basis of global capitalist imperial evil, for want of a better word, um, has always kind of reigned on them to a, to an extent that only the most kind of hard-hearted liberals can fully harden their souls to that, right? So there's there's a kind of leftist galvanist, like, I think this is the time to be like, yes, that's why we've always been on your side is because there's something like this was always a potential to happen. And it has been happening, like you're saying. Like it's this isn't the first time that we've seen these kind of horrors, but to this extent, it's a quantity, not qualitative difference. I think that matters because from an international law or like um internationalist perspective, there's a there's a difference between a sudden, entirely kind of unforeseen change in circumstances and something that's basically the conclusion to like a decades long horrific occupation with increasing genocidal sentiment. Um, like we've had people on the podcast before talking about how the sentiment has been slowly developing, right? From kind of superiority, kind of settler nationalism to ethnic cleansing as a kind of taken state of affairs. And now it's crossed over into like the popularity of a genocidal state and military industrial complex in Israel is really hard to come back from, like Carl was saying. Like, I don't know how at this point we can consider Israel a normal state in the next decade, right? The amount of people in both the upper echelons and people integrated into the IDF, and it's not just individuals at this point, like the explicit nature of the functions of these of the state has become genocidal. I don't know how you wind that back without a, a style of like deconstructing the state that we haven't seen since, I don't know. Germany? Maybe maybe Africa. We'll see. We'll see what form it takes. I don't want to presuppose solutions. That's the other thing is I think it's a bit easy for leftists overseas to say we're kind of on Palestinian side and therefore presuppose a solution. I've moved away from talking about like one state and two state solutions because it's clear Israel doesn't want a solution. Like that's what it comes down to, that that anti-solution. So I think really it's an irrelevant conversation right now. Yeah, but horrible, horrible shit. And the problem sits squarely with Israel. I don't think we need to like police each other and get too fanatical about whatever's happening, right? It's clear it's clear what's going wrong and what needs to happen to fix it. Yeah. I'm very much in the camp of let's just stop what's happening right now. That first step, just fucking stop it. We can work the other stuff out once people aren't being genocided. Western governments have like we've seen another shift. So we've been talking about this over the course of the current genocide campaign, Western government slowly peeling away from the hard Israel line. Macron came out today, pretty like saying like Israel targeted uh, people searching for food. He, he was actually naming Israel, uh, which, you know, we don't like Macron, uh, but they're being forced into these situations where they're having to take a stance on this now. Canada, New Zealand and Australia made a joint statement uh, a week or so ago calling for a ceasefire. Still not doing enough, obviously, and still like prevaricating far too much um, among 
the kind of five eyes nations were still being pulled into the genocide by the UK and the US. And we've recently attached ourselves as of this week. Uh, Winston Peters has started doing the, the West Bank shit, which is to ban uh, extremist settlers from traveling to New Zealand, you know, like doing some soft sanctions as if that has any impact at all at this yeah, stage. the whole point is that they don't like leaving the land they have stolen uh beyond the 67 boundaries like yeah okay like, you're not going to come to new zealand wow great good work some some fucking u.s u.s israeli guys from philly who have built a compound and like to take shots at kids on bicycles are not going to go you know what westport hey you never know uh what we're going to be offering them um, over the next couple of years um, under this government, John. So, uh, but they're, but they're still not going to be able to come here because they're banned now. Uh, this is still getting lost um, in in the news cycle as well. Um, I, I like. I'm still glad. I'm still still glad that there's a stuff about the West Bank uh, being talked about by our governments. The bad bit is that they're ignoring ignoring what's happening in Gaza more and less. Uh, but very few Western news organizations are covering the increased violence um, supported by uh, Israeli occupation forces in the West Bank. Israel is ramping up uh, military activity uh, against Palestinians there as well, continuing to put the line to their, we need to get rid of Hamas justification for, for the genocide. And we're seeing very little coverage of that because it immediately shows people that that's not what it's about. Like, okay, why are they attacking? Why is this happening in the West Bank? Then why have they fucking kidnapped six thousand people plus um, in the last few months uh, in the West Bank? Hamas isn't there. You know, this is this is it's, uh, governed by your allies. They like hundreds have been killed as well um, by settlers. Uh, often there can't be any retribution because. Uh, the Israeli army comes in and just says, oh, no, let's uh, protect the settlers. Let's calm it down, folks. And what I expect we're going to see, unless, and fuck, this is something we've been saying so much, and I I hate it, but unless things shift for the better, Israel's going to Gaza the West Bank. I'm, like, you, you'd be an From idiot. the river to the sea, everything will be under Israeli sovereignty, which is not a call for genocide. Apparently. Okay. It's it's just, it's liquid scripture. I mean, it is that thing, isn't it? Like when you hear about it, you hear Winston going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Macron going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Joe Biden going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And occasionally they'll cover Netanyahu going, I am going to kill everybody who gets in my way. What you don't hear is the members of the Nesset who are literally talking about exterminating people, moving settlers onto Gaza, mm-hmm. re- taking the West Bank, expanding into southern Lebanon. Yep. No, looking at the Sinai Peninsula and saying, hey, that looks pretty fucking good to me. Like these are this is happening on a daily basis. Like the Israeli media covers this war in a way which Western media cannot tell people about. Because if they did, it would immediately give the game away that this isn't a this isn't a war of defense. This is a genocide being carried out. This is not because of October 7th. This is a long plan in place. You know, you hear Biden going, well, we still believe in the two-state solution, Sunak, two-state solution, New Zealand government, two-state solution. And then he's like, no, that is never going to happen. Not only is it never going to happen, we are using right now to ensure it doesn't happen. That is what he is saying. That is what members of his parliament, members of his government are saying. And it is not reported on because 
it explodes the explodes the the entire the, the facade the charade but only in the media of his ally countries it's bizarre like people yeah. people are like oh but uh we have to be um balanced or whatever uh, i be inc- we need to be more pro israel than the times of israel like because that's where i get a lot of news about this i i go and read israeli media um, where they're, they're happy to some say a lot of the stuff out loud. Yesterday, I think it was Minister of the Interior in the Nesset um, was saying about this atrocity where IDF opened fire on um, people seeking food. He said, this is proof that we shouldn't be sending aid to them because they just lose their minds um, and it gives Hamas more opportunities to fight back. And and just saying, yeah, stop all aid. And you know, this is in a environment where uh, I just I can't. This is not human human stuff. Any well, I'm going to say it's not human stuff, but this is clearly coming from like humanity, and it's foolish to like blah 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 blah. Um, but the Israelis who are going to the checkpoints and fucking setting up bouncy castles and having raves to block food trucks from getting through. You know, this, this is supported all the way down. You know, yeah, it's not it's not just General Daniel Hagari of the IDF who is like the one or two people they get they quote in the media who always goes, Oh well, we'll look into it, but we don't think this is what's happened. And then they never follow up. Like this whole thing, I like we did not bomb that hospital. Okay, we did, but 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 actually there were bad guys there. No, we have no evidence of that. Yes, we've bombed like 36 hospitals now, but that's actually because that's actually a good thing now. That's the development of the story. And it's always when they get an accusation put to them, even with video evidence, they go, well, we'll look into it, but we don't think that's what's happened. And that is then printed. And then whatever comes out next, it doesn't matter because the next atrocity has happened. It is just a, like I said, it's a speed run. They are trying to get the maximum number of atrocities in the most amount of time. And it is just horrendous. However- we're going to end up keep we're going to keep going around in circles on this one with us just going this is fucking horrible because that's kind of where we are with it it's just going yeah. this is horrible israel needs to be stopped or rather the idf and the israeli government need to be stopped but also the israeli people need to be they also in some ways need to be stopped because they are behind this they are buying this 100 percent Exactly. I was about to say, you know, it's an extremely like a deeply concerning realization is that in terms of positionality and politics and what the relationship between Israel and Palestine should be, the Israeli government is representing the interests of their people more accurately than the UK government is. There are more small d democratic representation of voters than governments like the UK that are like representing a tiny vocal minority as opposed to the vast majority of people, right? Oh, that's what you get with proportional representation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Just the last make a bit of an anti-democratic stab there. Yeah, yeah. Get in, that. Get Sit in. on that. Um I think that'll last, come back later. Yeah. The last thing just on on this is that the ICJ time is up. Uh, Israel has has sent through like its evidence of how it's um, not doing a pl- trying to stop a plausible genocide or or whatever the um, terms were. That's with South Africa at the moment for response. Uh, so we'll see what bullshit they have tried to fucking spin up uh, pretty soon. But. They, it got worse. It got worse after South Africa made the application. Um, after the ICJ said this is plausibly a genocide, Israel did worse things. 
It was the same day. The same day they started to go after the UN. The mm-hmm. UN. The, the same day that judgment came out, and they were like uh, seven to twelve members of the UN refugee group. Yeah, uh, were involved in the March seventh attacks. There's no evidence for that. Still, the still US not. intelligence said there's no. There's nothing no. there. We haven't seen it. They've just told us this has happened, and there's been no evidence of it. But everyone cut the funding. It was literally they got a they got the lightest slap on the wrist, and were like. Okay, we're going to start starving people now. That's and, that's the only way you can see this. And this, and you know, cutting funding to that is genocidal complicity. I, like, sorry, everyone who did it, sorry, you're part of the genocide now. Well done, good work. Um, and and with incredible cynicism. And again, like, it's not cynical anymore. Uh, but you really get the feeling that Israel knows it's on a timer to grab as much stuff as it can to do as much damage as it can. Um, that ICJ uh, interim ruling was an indication of that. And so they decided to double down. They're like, okay, we don't we don't have as much time as we thought we might. We thought we could maybe spin this out for a year. It looks like the international community is going to be a bit quicker to try and stop us on this. We need to try and kill as many Palestinians as we can. Um, we need to destroy as much of the infrastructure as we can so that they can never go back. Horrible, horrible. Let's segue somehow over to New Zealand politics. I can't I can't pull one off. I'm sorry. Um, well, that was a lot of bad news. Speaking of bad things for the news. Hey, this is why we ask you to come come back, John. We've missed <laughs> you. We've missed you. Yeah, News Hub is going to shut a... Uh, by the middle of the year, which which is not just bad things for the news. It's bad news for New Zealanders. People <laughs> get pretty pissy with me about my antagonism uh, with our media, but I'd be a fool to think that the disestablishment of one of our only functioning broadcast newsrooms is a good thing for media or politics in this country. Like, it's that would be a wild thing to believe. I don't know. What what are other people's takes on this? Yeah, it's 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 bizarre. I've seen a couple of um kind of vibes-based responses, I suppose, from the journalist adjacent class being like, Well, you shouldn't have been criticizing us for the last decade, then should you? It's like, well Yeah, it's my fault. I'm mate. not sure yeah, I'm not sure what you think your job is, but you are talking to quite a few people. I, I don't know what kind of response you've received in the past. But I think there's a difference between a structural response to the failure of like big um, institutional news journalism, which has been obviously a long, slow death over the last few decades, particularly accelerated with social media and online and you know access to news that people didn't used to have, and like individual responses to people speaking Maori and the one o'clock journalism, whatever you know that people love to kind of both sides about this very like frustratingly right um the complaints that we've had on one of 200 since we started about news media haven't changed if anything a lot of them have got worse in response to like the decentralization of how people actually find their news day to day like old people can watch al jazeera now right they're not as uh illiterate as the the days where the choice was oh shall i flick to three or shall i stick with one um and i feel like a lot of the kind of reaction to it has refused to acknowledge that this is 2024 it's not um 2015 to be honest this all starts with uh the batgirl movie that warner brothers discovery canned last year the brendan fraser one uh 
because that was a sign that they're just like, we have poured millions of dollars into this film and we are willing to write it off as a tax thing. They also did it to the animation Wile E. Coyote movie. Same company that owns News Hub. And you can see them binning off these massive, massive projects that have they've invested time and money in and have completed. And then they came into New Zealand, took over a channel and were like, hey, it turns out there's no more money to extract from this country. What, what did we think was going to happen there? They started to scale things down. They ditched the project. Um, they are continually of the belief that Ryan Bridge is worth watching on TV. There are some severe issues here. But what's bad about it is that this is kind of, everyone's going, this is a failure of our news environment, and it is. But it was, Oak Tree sold it off to Warner Brothers Discovery, and that was seen as a good thing because they were a media company. That was only seen as a good thing because people don't understand that Warner Brothers Discovery is not a media company anymore. They don't, they're not that interested in making a whole lot of media. They're interested in making money off their established IP. The news is not intellectual property. It is not worth anything, which means that when they go to the cutting block, the news is going to go first. And we've talked about this before. The problem is we don't have a commercial counterweight to TVNZ and RNZ now. But fortunately, in the last four years, there have been quite a few successful alternative news outlets set up like Reality Check Radio and the platform, who are well-funded by people who don't care that they're losing money and are capturing a lot of the audience who would have just clicked between TV1 and 3. I see Reality Check Radio signs at the end of people's drive waves in my neighborhood. You know, I see that this they have created a successful far-right and conspiratorial media environment, and it has undercut traditional news media because it doesn't have to rely on the fact-checking. It can just get... Uh, I think Reality Check Radio had Martin Selner on recently Yep, of Identity Europa, you know, the one the Christchurch killer spoke to and gave money to, and they gave him a nice interview about the threat to Europe. That's what people are listening to now because they're not watching John Campbell at 7.30 on TV3. And that is a degradation of the information environment that we're in and a terrifying one. And also, I want my Batgirl movie. But this is the thing, right? And... Yeah, you said we've we've spoken about this a lot previously. I think one of the really frustrating things to me is people across media leadership or in positions where they are asked what they think uh, about the situation are pretending like they could never have guessed it, like it's this big horrible surprise. While their entire kind of occupation up till this point has been predicated on them being news people and being able to understand and analyze and critique this stuff and see what's coming so they can tell their audience about it. And yet somehow they had this, this blind spot around what was likely to happen with News Hub. I didn't think it was going to happen this year. You know, I thought maybe I had a little bit longer uh, left in the tank. Um, I thought there's maybe a little bit more that could get cut before they fully shuttered or some some shifts, you know, like Christopher Luxon said, they could just pivot to video. Um, why, why haven't they done that? Um, <laughs> but the other thing is, like, I think they still have the audiences. You know, it's not it's not like everyone's like flooding reality check radio um, and the platform. People still go to News Hub for their news. Um, and even reality check and the platform they rely on the newsrooms that we have here to spiral from. You know, like they're not going to break something. They're not going to break a story uh, generally unless they kind of get fed something from their their mates and the act party, like a, a leaked document or, or the like that they're using as a as a political um, a political tool. 
And I don't think people have really grasped that yet um, in, in the content space, in the in the kind of wider media space. Like only, only TVNZ is going to be breaking news now, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's not good. <laughs> well, other, I mean, other people can break news, right? Um, but I think, like, people have kind of been asking the wrong questions for the last couple of years. Colin Peacock on Media Watch made, like, quite an astute point, I thought, um, where he was talking about, like, there are different, types of delivery of news right there's a difference between an institutional newsroom with internal standards and something like reality check radio Absolutely. and like i don't underestimate the threat of reality check radio i went down to wellington for a weekend and saw like three adverts for reality check radio in central wellington the heart of the beast right if if there are ads are paid ads for reality check radio on fucking cuba street like these people are not concerned about losing money right as john said Oh, hold on a second. Hold on. No, there is that. There is that billboard company down in Wellington who are notoriously cooked. Uh, okay. Who I am guessing probably mates right? Yeah, because they did. They best. did it for the. They did it for the turfs and shit as well. Remember, there's that. Okay. There's that one billboard company that that puts up some really fucking out there stuff occasionally, and it's like, okay, okay. you know, that'll be them. That'll be them then. Um, but still, I was like, who? Who's? Who is walking down out of I, I look around and I'm I look by far the most conservative person on Cuba Street, right? So walking down Cuba Street, I'm like, none of these people are seeing your signs and tuning in for the, the evening <laughs> broadcast to insane hard right. Anyway, you know the deal. Um so I'm not underestimating their well undercooking to over maybe over labor return the threat that they pose, but it is like functionally it's a different type of media, right? Yeah. There's a difference between paying people to go out, go and find stuff, you know, much as we've complained about. Obviously, News Hub and TV One haven't done enough of that stuff. They have focused more on kind of scraping social media, essentially, and putting up whatever remnants they can in the half hour they have to publish something. But they still do serve that function after a fashion. Like, if someone's going to leak something from a public service, it's probably not statistically it's probably not going to be to a reality check radio it's going to be to a newsroom that has internal standards and is less likely to uh accidentally publish someone's email address for example mm. <laughs> so there's a purpose to these things right and maybe the question is less um do you trust the media which you know the numbers for that in surveys over time has been steadily decreasing and it's more, what do you think the purpose of media should be? Do you value current events news? Do you value journalism? Do you value investigative journalism? Which is what we used to ask. Um, and headline more often is that it's always over 70% of people who say that, right? They they do value the function that that kind of investigative news journalism brings. It's just that that might look different over time. So, you know, I think I think there is like a the preponderance of, of cynicism that is kind of, I don't know, maybe overly foregrounded in these discussions. Like New Zealand is a small country. I think we need to be realistic about the number of competing financially viable media organizations we can have, but maybe the response isn't, uh, we need an extra discovery owned fucking, you know, commercially viable media organization in a market that is being slowly eked away, but we need to accept that it's a loss making enterprise to do good journalism, which is why it used to be vastly government funded, right? We still do contribute like by international standards, a reasonably large amount of money to journalism. It's just, it's not in the right places. And the choices that have been made at RNZ and TVNZ in the last few decades have absolutely undermined the idea that government could run a successful news organization. 
but that doesn't mean it's not the best model. Like there, there are a lot of things we could do to publicly fund and democratically run news organizations in New Zealand that we've refused to do, like quite consciously. There have been like in-depth kind of investigations about potential solutions and just ruling out the ones that cost 10%, 20% more. And now look what, what happens. Where do those people go, right? Of course, we're, we're leaving them with like the hollowed out remains of a decrepit news organization. I don't know. Hate to say I told you so. All right. Yeah, I think the other thing is, is like we've seen this shift um, across Western countries to forcing the big aggregators to fucking pay for the news content. You know, they're fighting in Canada at the moment. They fought it in Australia and, and won. Last year, they tried to get Google to pay. Um, and it was just like, nah, <laughs> you know, um, it's as much about, as you're saying, the cost of running it um, as anything else. Uh, and they, like I said, they, I think um, these organizations have decent audiences, but they just can't make money out of it. Um, and it's because once again, you know, people like us, we, do, we take the content from that for free and we repackage it and we do our own thing with it. We do like analysis, critique, et cetera. But then you've got the Googles uh, of the world who are, I think it came out this week. They are, they're paying small independent news organizations to use a, an untested Google AI, which will scrape other uh, news organizations to write stories to undermine like <laughs> the wider news environment. Um, and what are they paying? What huge amounts of money are they paying to these little indie uh, news companies? Oh, you know, five figures. It's it's obscene. They're actively trying to do this. Meanwhile, they're taking enormous amounts offshore. I saw something today. It was like they shipped like $864 million offshore from New Zealand back to the parent company. And they paid $6.4 million tax. Some of that should maybe have been captured by the government here for starters, but then put back into organizations that Google relies on to even provide a service. Uh, and it's been stunning to me the way that media leadership here has just kind of allowed it to happen. You know, they're, they're not out here effectively lobbying. They're constantly uh, just getting into like corporate fights with each other, you know, like all of them came out and were trying to like slam this merger between TVNZ and RNZ, which I think would have been actually pretty good because they saw that as something that would be bad for their own brand, um, essentially. I I just don't think the leadership among people in the, this industry uh, is anything other than ego-driven, uh, selfish, and short-sighted. Um, and I think as much as anything else, you know, Warner Brothers or whoever can come in and make these horrible decisions. There were people here who could have stopped that. And they chose not to because they thought they could ride the wave instead. There are there are a couple of things here. One is the media itself did not start kicking back against Winston Peters until after he was in power with his accusations that the public journalism fund was a slush fund for propaganda for the government, which it never was. It was literally the only thing keeping some newsrooms open, um, some of which I have worked with, and they were fantastic. That money is slowly disappearing. And the journalism as a result, that journalism pool is slowly drying up because there is no money to pay journalists. The other thing was 22nd of February was the um, the anniversary of the Christchurch quakes. Now, I wasn't in the country at the time, but you gentlemen were. Imagine the aftermath of the quakes without TV3 and John Campbell. Consider the CTV you've built in case, or Pike River, without some of the journalism that TV3 brought. 
And I know that Paula Penfold doesn't work there anymore, but she was working there as well. If you think about the last couple of decades of some of TV3's biggest stories and most important journalism, that is gone now. So when the Hikurangi fault goes or the Alpine fault goes, TVNZ are going to be the only news crew there. There is not going to be a plurality or diversity of voices. TVNZ will become increasingly shot shy about probably criticizing the government, given that David Seymour has already kind of lined them up in his sights now and said, well, TV3 would have existed if TVNZ wasn't so selfish and taking up all the media space. This is an incredibly precarious time for journalism. And as you said, Kyle, it is kind of on some of the journalists themselves, especially the leaders, those people who were heads of those newsrooms and maybe went to form their own independent media organization in the last few years and are now having a big fucking souk in the press about the thing that they escaped from happening. If you are a leader in the media environment, if you are an executive, if your name sounds like Bark Wennings, maybe now would be the time to do a little bit of reflection on how you've got to a point where you're probably okay, but everything else isn't, and you hadn't been talking about it until the thing that you knew was going to happen happened. You're apparently a newsman. Where were you reporting the fucking news? And it's going to become more and more important to have proper, like, institutionalized newsrooms that are able to process this stuff and, and get it out to the public in an age in which governments are just starting to take the piss, honestly, and especially here since the National Coalition came into power. Like, do you want one newsroom trying to keep pace with their their policy platform that's being rolled out over the last few months? Like, that's a, a wild thing to believe, that, that, that a single newsroom is able to, to manage that. We've had multiple, like, extensively uh, important repeals just this week that completely undermine norms and process, uh, that seem to intentionally have been pushed forward so that they can avoid having a investigation by the Waitangi Tribunal. It's really hard to understand what's happening in the media environment as anything other than an extension of authoritarian creep across across civil society because these people in power don't want people holding them to account. Uh, and look, when when the news hub news was announced, look at the response from the, the right-wing spokespeople. They just say, ah, fuck it. You know, like, ah, oh, so it goes. That's what happens. Luxon just, like, had the most insane gibberish uh, to offer. Head of, Minister of Broadcasting, Melissa Lee, was like, she she she's now saying she misspoke, but she lied about um, having been asked for financial help by the company. Turns out she was asked. David Seymour took aim at TVNZ, like, you're next, motherfuckers. And yeah, you mentioned uh, Winston Peters earlier as well. He was telling people who's going to come for their jobs. You know, he was, like, during the election campaign. The news is just too woke, too and woke. that's why and TV3 why. broke. TV3 went under because, News Hub went under because it was too woke. And I was like, yeah, I, I, love, I love my woke TV3, you know. So it's... We, there are multiple things happening at the moment that are just not good. They're, they're not good for society. I would love to have that newsroom kept around. The other side effect is it's not just like we don't have a plurality of newsmakers. All the institutional knowledge, like how to make a fucking news story that is within that newsroom is snuffed out. They can't, there's nowhere else for them to go. You know, they're not going to go to another newsroom where TVNZ is like at capacity. Whoa. 
we are losing a lot of really good shit. And yeah, I, I, I don't know what the media environment looks like um, six months from now. To the uh to the junior journalists who are hard workers, please apply for jobs at one hundred uh, nz. We have many openings. The pay not be may not be comparable, but we promise not to be as much of a bully as your previous employers. Thank you very much. It may not be anything. Um, let's be let's be totally upfront about that. Carl, don't tell them this now. This is meant to be a pullback and reveal situation. <laughs> Oh, wait, I forgot. There's also the other horrifying consequence. There is a gap in our media environment, and there is a very elderly Australian man across the Tasman who loves media environments that he can access. He's like 96 years old, your friend and mine, Rupert Murdoch. How much do you think the government would love a New Zealand equivalent of the Australian or the Murdoch news over there? How much do you think they love that right now? How much would Winston Peters get down on his feet, get down on his knees and lick Rupert Murdoch's feet for that news organization? Because there is a gap and it's this, well, you wanted a news organization and we end up with New Zealand Fox News, which then also provides a nice staging post for all of our reality check radio and platform friends to make a triumphant return to the mainstream. The New Zealander, mate. It's the New Zealander and it's on its its way in a couple of months. I am, I do not like, touching the lathe of heaven and speaking <laughs> these things into existence. But one of my first thoughts was, oh, Jesus Christ, I hope he's too old and decrepit to notice this one. I hope that James Murdoch is too woke and they, they just don't see the value in it. But it's there is currently a gap. And if someone goes to fill that gap, what's the New Zealand media lockstep into? Actually, this is good for media plurality as all of their friends get jobs there. Absolutely. There is, there's going to be no critique of it anywhere but on podcasts such as this. And possibly some blog sites. Gordon Campbell will do it over at Scoop on Werewolf because Gordon's good and we love Gordon. But if Murdoch decides to try and run something in this country, watch our entire media just go, yes, sir, absolutely. I cannot I cannot wait for, you know, Sean Plunkett as the new Tucker Carlson. Uh, you know what he I mean? He fucking wishes. I can't wait for, like, uh, Annie O'Brien to become fucking Brett Stevens or something like that. Because, you know, it's it's the horrible future that nobody wants, but the opportunity is now there. And it's going to, you know, you say you're, you're touching the lathe. Um, we all love to have our, our flesh and bone flinched away. That's why we can't um, stop ourselves. But it's <laughs> it's so clear that this is one of the paths because, oh, we don't have Murdoch, though. It's the constant kind of triumphalism of people in the media here who don't like to be critiqued and we've taken issue with this for five years that we've been fucking running like yeah we don't and it's kind of doesn't matter like you managed to do all this dumb shit anyway well done good work folks um obviously murdoch is capable of doing much much worse um and as you say john it's going to be really fucking funny uh to see a whole bunch of the the media people who have said that to me um in defense uh, of our media environment, just roll over and and open their mouths wide for a tasty boot. On that note, <laughs> we've seen this this rapid shifting of the way in which our right wing parties have approached uh, political policy um, and uh, this degradation of our media environment. And people might say we're moving closer towards the UK politics and media environment. We've got John here to give us our our UK update. Really bad. Just just a quick note. The worst segues for many months from Kyle this 
week. I can only apologize. Um, look, do it better. Come, come on more and do it better. I Fuck should. you. Look, it's my fault. I need to take some personal responsibility. I'm, ju- I'm just foregrounding the fact that we're aware that it's not good enough. Yeah, and- I'm aware too. Thank you. So, uh, the UK, it's bad. It continues to be bad. It has, in fact, always been bad. Uh, but there was a by-election this week, which I'm not sure. Have you guys covered this on the pod before? Uh, I've been a little tardy with my listening. So there was a by-election because a Labour MP in Rochdale sadly passed away from leukemia in January. So they had to have a by-election, even though it's an election year. And the candidates were insane. It's probably the best way to put it. Labour put in a guy called Azhar Ali who was a former advisor to Gordon Brown on the right of the Labour Party, exactly what Keir Starmer's brand new Labour Party should be. The Green Party candidate withdrew after making some serious Islamophobic comments. An independent candidate was running, that's Simon Danzit, former Labour MP who had to step down or lost his seat after it was found he was sexting a 17-year-old girl while married. Let's see. Oh, and George Galloway. Now, regular since the pod might know who George Galloway is. People who don't, please do not Google him. (laughs) Pay attention to him. Do not Google George Galloway cat, okay? George Galloway, also a former Labour MP. So what we've got actually in the seat is three, uh, two former Labour MPs and a prospective Labour MP, all of who became Labour MPs during the time when the right of the party were in charge, which is like mostly forever. Now, what happened was about after the nominations had closed, they couldn't change who the candidates were. The Daily Mail reported a recording of a meeting that took place in Rochdale after October 7th, in which Azahali said that Israel ignored the warnings they were given about the October 7th attacks. They did not increase their security, that they wanted it to happen so that they would have a green light to do whatever they wanted. Now, in the British media environment, and especially regards to the Labour Party, Criticizing Israel is the worst thing that you can possibly do, even if, as we've noted earlier today, they are doing very bad things. So when Andy MacDonald, a left-wing member of the Labour Party, had said, what we seek is liberty for all between the river and the sea, he was immediately suspended, even though he hadn't said the exact words of the chant that people get upset about. He was immediately suspended, like same day. For Azhar Ali, he had shadow cabinet ministers going on national TV and national radio saying, these views do not reflect the views of the candidate. He's fallen for an online conspiracy theory, but those actually don't reflect his real views for, I think, about 36 hours. They They sent people to campaign with him up in Rochdale to show that they were showing solidarity with their candidate. And then about 36 hours later, the next news story comes out, which is the rest of the recording which is a bit where Azhar Ali says the, that Andy McDonald was only suspended because of certain Jewish quarters in the media. Now, you can criticize Israel for their really shithouse defense on October 7th because they fucked it up and there's a lot of evidence to show that they fucked that up. But there is a line between criticizing Israel and saying the Jewish media got this MP suspended. And literally four or five hours after they had been on the Radio 4 evening program saying, actually, he's a great candidate and we support him, they withdrew their, their support from him. So what does that mean? Well, it means that he was on the ballot but wasn't supported as a Labour candidate. They stopped campaigning completely. So all of those shadow cabinet ministers, all of those party luminaries just disappeared. They evaporated. Um, Ed Balls, the hilariously named former Chancellor of the UK or Shadow Shadow Chancellor, said, I think we need to consider this differently because he's not hard left and he's not a Corbynite. 
So when he does anti-Semitism, we should actually treat it differently to when Andy McDonald allegedly does, but didn't actually do anti-Semitism. The factionalism that the Ford report raised is still there, but it's made Labour look like chumps. And George Galloway, he campaigns. George Galloway is a white Scottish man who wears a hat. He campaigns to the Muslim community and 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 the, and the Islamic community. Okay. And so he was saying, vote for me to tell the tell the government and the Labour Party to get stuffed on Gaza. He's also incredibly transphobic and a complete shithead. Okay. I'm not underestimating anything. I'm not understating this. He's a horrible fucking human being. But he won. He won by a majority of about 5,000-ish, which overturned a Labour majority of 10,000. And the Labour Party came out and apologised for not being able to provide a good enough candidate. So what does this say about Britain right now? It's bad. It's very bad. Um, You can't criticise Israel in a way, even for things that they have done, without getting suspended from the nominally centre-left party. Okay, you can't do that. Uh, another MP who was also at that meeting, his recording also got leaked, was Graham Genocide Jones, who very much supports Saudi Arabia bombing Houthis and has done for since they started. And in the meeting, he was he expressed fucking Israel, and that was seen as, you can't say that. And he also said that uh, British British Jews who go to fight for the IDF should be fucking locked up which legally he's wrong because Britain wants that to happen. If they'd gone off to fight, like maybe even in Ukraine, you're in a dodgy area. But if you're a British, if you're British, you you take your invoke your right of return, you have your Israeli citizenship, they're quite happy for you to go and fight for the IDF. I mean, you also got to go and fight for someone. You could just go over there as a non-combatant um, yeah, and be Shemima Begum, right? Uh, that's different though, because she's brown. That's different because she's brown, and and the Home Secretary wanted to look tough, you know, Sajid Javid, who's no longer in government. Um, but this is kind of the situation we're in, which is the Keir Starmer's Labour Party said we will root out anti-Semitism root and branch, and when it turned out there were accusations of it on their side of the party, said, well, hold on, just a second. You can't simply expect us to suspend people just for saying a few things, which kind of runs against everything they've done so far. Now, it's an election year, and Labour are at least 20 points ahead. But the concern is this meeting took place just after October 7th. I think it was like October 10th, October 11th, and it was a community cohesion meeting, which was local councillors, former MPs for the area, talking with the community about, look, we know this is really bad. We want everyone to stand together on this. Somebody kept that recording until February when they released it to the media. My question is, if the Labour Party select a full slate of candidates for the next election, and they will, how many of those candidates are there recordings of saying something that's anti-Israel? How many of them have said something about the situation in Gaza, which because of the environment that Labour has cultivated around how they deal with criticism of Israel will mean that they have to stand down candidates and not be able to replace them. It's the feeling that what happened in Rochdale is a test run for something that's going to happen during the general election. And that is terrifying in terms of how many Labour candidates can we knock out 
before the election happens. So yeah, that's happened. I think the election was yesterday or Thursday this week. But in other news, Rishi Sunak, every, everyone's favorite pint-sized billionaire, went out and gave a speech this evening about- Not in response ex- to Rochdale, though. Definitely not in response to Rochdale. Not not Actually, scared of George Galloway. It wasn't, but it kind of was. Because earlier this week, the SNP had this uh, call for a ceasefire in Gaza, this amendment which said, hey, uh, we should cut this shit out because this counts as collective punishment. They legally put in all the stuff there, which meant that if the government passes it, or if it was voted for, then the UK government would have to change who it supplies arms to and things like that, because it would be legally recognising that it was doing bad shit by assisting in a genocide, which it is. The problem with that is the last time they did one of these, there was the biggest Labour rebellion in ages. Jess Phillips rebelled against the government. And Jess Phillips doesn't rebel against the government because she doesn't have a single thought of her own that isn't, look at me, I'm Jess Phillips. What she does have is quite a large Muslim community in her electorate, love self-preservation. The last time there was a rebellion of 58, this time it was going to be even bigger because a lot of MPs who know that the Labour Party does rely on the Muslim community for their vote are looking at the demographics of their electorate and going, I am going to lose support here and it could be crucial. So Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, um, looks like a blancmange painted grey, went and spoke to the Speaker of the House shortly after apparently speaking to Isaac Herzog, the President of Israel, which he said in an interview on Sky TV, which they then deleted. Whoops. And he said, look, I am concerned that if we, if if Labour votes against this and we're going to have to vote against the, the SNP's thing, we were concerned for the safety of MPs because there were protesters outside. And yes, there were protesters outside, but they were not protesting in a furious way. They weren't far from like the far right statue defending mobs that have been seen. And so the Speaker put Labour's amendment to defang the SNP's thing ahead of the SNP vote, which is a breach of parliamentary protocol, and said he was doing it to the House. I'm doing it out of concern for the safety of the members of this House. Because Labour said, uwu, don't make us vote against this. People will be mad at us. And he went, yeah, sure, we will undo what's happening here. I will make sure that Labour won't look bad by ensuring that they get their neutering of this thing first. And that's what happened. And obviously people went, dude, what the fuck is going on there? So Sunak steps out tonight and says, we need to protect our, we need to protect our democratic norms. There are extremists trying to tear this country apart. They tell us that we must hate our history and the West, and what we are going to do is stop extremism on campus and expand the Prevent Program. The Prevent Program Prevent program is so fucking racist, it's unbelievable. It's the one that's had like five-year-olds being interviewed by the cops because he was talking about giving alms, A-L-M-S, to the poor, and his teacher reported him to the cops because she thought he meant arms as in rackham. That's literally a thing that's happened in Britain recently. Now, when he was talking, he was talking about these mobs are threatening the democratic process. And I say to people protesting legitimately, do not let them do this to your right to protest. The only examples that he mentioned were the recent pro-Palestine protests. He did mention at the beginning the right wing. Oh, yeah, the, you know, the people of this country are caught between the far right and Islamism. Those are the two floating opposites we have here. Far right, Islamism. That's it. The left doesn't exist anymore. It's all Islamism, baby. 
so he's given this speech. He says they're going to expand the prevent program. He's spoken to the police. Anyone who's here at one of those protests who is viewed as kind of inciting hatred, blah, 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 will be deported. That could be quite a few people given the definitions of what this could be because he's not being clear on it. It was possibly the most outright fascist thing I've seen him do, which is fun given he was co- he was covering it by saying, I am the first non-white prime minister. I lead the most diverse cabinet ever. I want to protect our democratic norms. It was basically an entire speech of, don't fucking at me on Twitter. I do not want to hear you complaining about the genocide. If you do, we are going to send the boys round. And that's comforting, fun. I cannot wait for Winston Peters' equivalent or Chris Luxon's equivalent, because I'm sure they'll have looked at that and gone, huh, I wonder if we can do that. They have to fund the cops first. Well, they're going to be too busy um, stopping the uh, Scouting Association of New Zealand for being a recognised gang with patches, <laughs> with an organisational structure, a clear leadership, and possibly the ability to intimidate, especially those Sea Scouts. Dangerous. <laughs> Fucking yachting around the coast, uh, running running arms to the poor. Arms to the poor, yeah. You can't arm the poor. It sounds, official... pre- it sounds pretty good over in the UK then. Oh, yeah, and that's that's before you get to like the... the the general condition of the place and the, the just ongoing transphobic nonsense, um, you know, yelling yelling at the media because they're misgendering, uh, well, no, they're, because they're correctly gendering trans people. Not two weeks after everyone was horrified that Rihanna Gay's murder was brought up in the house as a way to attack Sakir Starmer um, because there was nothing that upset the British media more than the idea that the Prime Minister might have upset a cis white woman by using her dead trans daughter to to score points. It wasn't that there was transphobia there. It was that, that, that it upset a grieving mother, which is what Britain is all about at the minute. For a government that leans hard into culture war and anti-woke stuff, they also certainly love to lose their entire minds about the possibility of people being able to talk to them about issues. And it's not just the government. It's the Labour MPs too. They are terrified of the public at the minute because they can see that the situation, especially in Gaza and with Palestine, is completely untenable. They can see that the community can see that, but they've got to stick to the fucking line. And the the contradictions, they are heightening. You know, the, the old world is dying, the new world is currently armed and coming for them in their mind. That's not what's happening, but it could be. We can mm. only hope. No, it's, it's very like, <laughs> Um, the reports about the Sunak speech is a very kind of Tommy Wiseau tearing me apart energy, right? Like, I don't know, it feels quite performative and um, like he's trying a bit too hard. But as you would, right, as a objectively, whatever that means, quite far right kind of prime minister pretending to be a centrist, it kind of holds together that he would say this is, you know, extremist disruption and criminality, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you're the prime minister, so... Who are you saying is like governing over this? You think it's a. Uh, he, this is the- he did suspend, he suspended one of his MPs this week. Uh, Lee Anderson noted a uh, former Labour Party member and Labour MP assistant Lee Anderson, who is so right wing now that he said that Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, had been captured by Islamists. Man, and when he was asked when to it- when he was asked to apologise for it, he said, "No, I'm just telling the truth." Oof, love that. And they they nearly tried to defend him as well. Like it, it's like the inverse of the Azhar Ali thing. It's them just going, "Well, actually, you know." But in this speech, he, again, far right 
and Islamists were the two groups. Yeah. That's not an accident. Which is That's wild. Him. I mean, talk to anyone from the from any anywhere who has personal experience with however you personally define Islamism. Um, it's not like the socialist and communist factions in those countries have ever worked well under quote unquote Islamism, right? Islamism is basically an invention of the far right in the vast majority of those countries. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but just to make explicit what is kind of implicit, there's a there's a reason that people talk about Islamism as opposed to uh, you know anything specific fascist factions in those countries for the most part right um or you know even nationalism so uh, it's it's fun that Keir Starmer came out and supported what Sunak said today yeah um the SMP and the other parties just went dude what the fuck are you talking about are you insane but Starmer was like I, I welcome the prime minister's comments and believe we should protect our democratic norms and you just go wait hold on a minute he knows what what Sunak means by Islamism. There's a reason they attack Sadiq Khan. It's because he's a brown Labour politician. And by putting far right and Islamism against itself, he is, and I may be about to use some slurs here, he's saying the Labour Party are a bunch of Paki-loving, Muslim, Sharia law-compliant, like anti-British people. And the problem with the Labour Party there is that they're going to find that very hard to get away from because they do rely on the Muslim vote and and that vote quite considerably. But Starmer can't say, he can say, oh yeah, Islamism is a threat. But they're ta- they're, it's not just the left anymore. The left were anti-Semites at the last election. Now they're Islamists because Islamists are also, also anti-Semites. But it is saying the Labour Party loves brown people more than they love white people. And Britain is more is more of a white country than I think the right wing over there would have you believe. Like it's like in the eighty percent, okay. And a lot of them are racist. And so by doing this, he's saying, you know, if you support pro-Palestine, you protest. You're anti-British. If you rely on the Muslim community or you extend any form of kind of political enfranchisement to them, you are anti-British. It is a terrifying triangulation that, on the surface, looks like a completely like garbled speech but that's because we don't listen like dogs listen and if you were a dog listening to that speech you will have started barking very loudly john i'm hearing uh reports that the next election the left's going to be uncomfortably pro samoan rights um what are your comments on that r.i.p uh fana efeso collins to be honest a fair response like, <laughs> like the brother had so much more to do i knew him when i did some work in south auckland he had so much more to give, and I am hoping that that community can come together and work in his memory for, for the bettering of of South Auckland in particular, Otara, Magris, Otahuhu, Manurewa, all everyone out south, man. That's that's all we've got on this, you know. But it's going to be there. We're going to have this thing about immigrants. We're going to have this thing about too many people coming in. This government are primed for it because, well. It depends. I'm going to do a segue. The government in the UK have pretty much achieved all of their policy aims over the last 13 years, which is why they're about to die on their ass at the election. Whereas we've got an equally right-wing and insane government here who are only just getting started. Shall we talk about repeals? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing, right? This is is the direction we're heading. The UK is a good um, example of what's coming up. It's a bad example. 
That's a very bad example. It's a, t- it's a terrible, horrifying example. So I actually was looking at the comparisons, and I was just thinking about it last week because I'm sad and I don't have any like hobbies. And this government does remind me a little bit of the Tory Lib Dem coalition of 2010, which came in and implemented ruthless austerity in their first five-year term. Absolutely ruthless. They cut the shit out of everything in the interest of balancing the books. And that's the same narrative you're hearing from this government. No, no, we can't afford that. No, no, we can't afford that. No, no, we can't afford that. But there's going to be a $14 billion tax cut this year. But we're not going to spend $4 billion on a 100-year upgrade for the Cook Strait Crossing and some purpose-built ferries for it. We're not going to do the um, the transport choices upgrades across the country to make cycling routes and walking routes and roads safer for people. We're going to pull back on these things for the short-term balance sheet increase. Oh, we're not going to upgrade all the moldy school classrooms. We're not, we're not going to pay for that anymore. For To make the balance sheet look good this year, they are stopping everything. Oh, and we're not going to do three waters. We've repealed the smoke-free legislation. What else have they done? Oh, they repealed the RMA, the new RMA. So we've gone back to the old one, which everyone hated anyway. What else? What else was there in there? Maori Health Board. Of course, yeah, Māori Health Board and the the Māori Health Authority, and also pulling back on the localism aspects of the um, of Health New Zealand. And direct, was- like contradiction to what Ricky was saying about wanting to give more power back to local communities and health. Shane Ritty's a doctor who loves people smoking. I mean, how much more of a contradiction can you get? Um, so, yeah, they've pulled all this stuff back in the idea that right now we're going to cut all this stuff and people are going to be upset about it, and then we'll slowly put things in place to replace it. And by the time the election comes around in three years' time, people will mostly forgotten about this really bad period, except that's not how it's going to work. Because with the smoking thing, you can count the number of people who die of smoking-related diseases and you can say, this cost you this. When one of the when one of the inter islander ferries loses power in the Cook Strait and we can't rescue it, when we should have had the first new boat in place by this time next year, people are going to notice. When there are cuts to customs, people are going to notice. When there are cuts to the ACC, people are going to notice. When the government starts to shrink but doesn't get more efficient because that's not how it works. People are going to notice the degradation of our society as a whole. They're also going to notice that the repeal of three waters is going to put an awful lot of money on their rates each year until the government decide what the replacement is, because they haven't done that yet. They promised in the 100 days we will repeal and replace three waters. They've repealed it, but they're not going to have all the replacement stuff in place until May 2025. That's a long time in governance terms. It's an awful long time in rates terms. People are going to be asked to pay more to get less across the board, across this country. It's an extractive process. It's one that's going to rely on local government selling assets. So we're going to lose public assets in the public sphere. And things aren't going to get any better, but the balance sheet is going to look temporarily better. And people are going to say, well, that's the most important thing. I don't even know if it is. Well, it is to them. Um, <laughs> except all that money is going straight out. This is like one of the most bizarre things. Like if they didn't, and then, do the and then when tax cuts. things get really bad, and people go, "Hey, this is really bad," the government will swing around to, "Well, you know who's taking all the money? It's the Maori, it's the Pacifica, it's the immigrants, it's the gays, it's the transers. It's going to be every culture war is cover for." the economic policy 
effectively. And a lot of people are more than happy to go along with that. Okay, on the right, because they're going to get theirs, but everything else is going to degrade slowly. And it doesn't look like the Labour Party are in any way interested in doing anything about this. Chris Hipkins is getting angry in the House, but they're not calling it out for what it is. And that worries me intensely, because three years of this government would be bad. Six years would be very, very bad. Nine years would be catastrophic. And we're not talking about John Key here. Even John Key has come out and on a couple of occasions gone, are you sure you want to do that? Because that's very, very bad, especially around the treaty stuff. Oh, do you know what? We completely forgot the treaty principles bill, didn't we? Because I know, but that's not going to so... go through. That's not going to go through, John. doesn't matter. Once you poison the discourse, David Seymour is Chris Luxon's Nigel Farage. Oh, absolutely. Chris Luxon Luxon is David Cameron. He is going to get, we're going to end up with a citizens initiated referendum Mm -hmm. at the next election about the treaty principles. Yeah, Don Brash and the boys. Well, you'd want to run it at the same time as a general so that everyone who votes against it, it divides the party lines. Yeah. It'll boost act. It'd screw some of national. That's what the right wing want. If I was them and I had just risen out of my grave like Don Brash, he's still not dead. Um, I would be looking at the 2026 election and saying, we want the citizens-initiated referendum to be the same time as that election because it's going to split the party vote. It is going to be the equivalent of the 2019 election for the Labour Party in the UK, except they're targeting national. This is exactly like what we've been saying as well. Like, I mean, it's very clear what they're doing. They, they're using a playbook that has already been played out. Like, you can just just go and have some, like, base-level analysis. And as you say, like, where is... If there's a, if there's a feeling that Labour thinks this is, already believes this is a one-term government because it's so bad and don't have to do anything. Phil Goff thought that. Whoops. Yeah. I think yeah. Shearer thought that as well, didn't he? Ever the Labour Party Labor. and thinking that they are just going to waltz to a win is a yeah ongoing yeah. ongoing trope. Yeah, I don't know if they I don't know if they uh, think they're going to waltz to a win, but they're still in shock, right? Like, there's no vision. That's for sure. Even worse than was the case in the past. The complaints they make are purely on the terms of the opposition. So when Chris Hipkins complains about something, it's not like he's presenting an alternate. Um, path forward he's just saying look what you're doing wrong which i mean even i think probably most national voters would acknowledge that what the government's doing so far isn't what they said they were going to do there's no kind of coherent path forward in place but to so what right you know if if you have the same kind of fiscally conservative presuppositions as most center center right far right voters then of course you're not going to peel anyone away. You're not you're not convincing anyone to vote left by saying, guess what, you're not living up to what you said you were going to do, or you know this repeal isn't doing anything. People know that. That's not you know they voted for the right already knowing that. You're not winning anyone over, mate. It's a bizarre kind of contradiction in terms. Chris Hipkins arguing from the opposition benches that what the government is doing is unpopular with the electorate. 12 months after he fucking binned off every popular policy that his government had is one of the most infuriating fucking things ever. 
him going, oh man, you're not doing like the people don't want this. And I'm like, the people wanted a wealth cap, Christopher. The people wanted a CGT, Christopher. People wanted this shit done. People wanted light rail in four years, Christopher. Oh, if only someone could have done something. Like Jacinda's done the same thing in the last, oh man, I wish that only someone could have done something. You were the prime minister. With an absolute majority. With an absolute majority for years. And you decided to conserve your fucking political capital for no fucking reason. And now these guys have come in and they are going to, they are not going to stop. TV3 goes down. David Seymour is like aiming at TVNZ because it's a degradation of an institution that he does not like challenging him. Nicola McKee is bringing back, putting back on the table semi-automatic weaponry. Like these are things that are happening because this government has the will to actually get shit done and aren't too afraid of their own fucking shadows. And Chris Hipkins needs to step down as leader because he is far too associated with every single obvious failing of that last government, you know? They assumed they were going to win last year. That is the only thing I can the only thing I can possibly see as the reason why all of this stuff all of the stuff that the government have easily repealed wasn't locked into place. They thought they were getting three more years and it would be easy. They thought that they'd be able to get the contracts and all the the port build underway. They thought the smoke-free stuff would have passed and people, because it was too popular, it wouldn't be able to un- be undone. They thought the Maori Health Authority would have three more years to get established so you couldn't undo it. And they thought this, but they didn't have any way to win that fucking election. And it is absolutely disgusting that Chris Hipkins will sit there, stand up in the opposition benches and castigate the government for doing things that are unpopular when he put us in this fucking mess. And that's, Sorry. A good place, that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Sorry, man. I just get so pissy at him at the minute. It's just, I just hear her and I'm like, dude, this is on you. You're responsible. You don't need to apologize. It's good to have you back. Uh, And thank you also to my co-host, Philip. Cheers for joining us. Very welcome. Never let them forget they had an absolute majority and refused to make use of a historical opportunity to change New Zealand for the better. Oops, they didn't want to do it. If you enjoyed this podcast, give it a share. Give it a five stars. Uh... Write a comment, uh, say, Phillips, my favorite co-host. Um, I hear he really loves those kind of comments, um, being at the top of the, the list of reviews. Um, oh, I don't. Please say literally anything else. It's very... Um, Phillips is the worst. John, have John on more often. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, everything's in the summary. Uh, Patreon link, give us some money. Um, and we'll be back with, hopefully... A pretty big podcast mid next week. So keep your ear to the ground for that one or wherever you listen to podcasts. You're getting Chris Hipkins on to talk about how bad the government are. God, he wouldn't. He's a coward. (laughs) All right. We'll catch you later, everybody. See ya. Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're